Welcome to the Business Herald podcast. The Business Herald is a weekly roundup of all of the top UK business news stories by email, social media, and this podcast. The podcast will feature some of the week's main stories, and we'll be joined by various business people on each episode to discuss the week's news and how it might impact a smaller business like yours. And hopefully we'll have some fun on a Friday too. I'm your host, Stephen Mather. I'm a lawyer for SMEs, and I help business owners sleep better at night by sorting their legal problems out. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Business Herald. Welcome along to episode 14 of the Business Herald podcast on 20th of November 2020. This week, I'm joined once again by James Blacklaws and Paul Green. James is a commercial mortgage broker with JB Commercial Finance. His whole career has been in business finance and he has a degree in economics, so he really knows his stuff. He'd like you to follow him on social media and subscribe to his YouTube channel where he regularly shares information about commercial finance. Paul is the founder of The Business Community. He's been in business himself since 2003. The Business Community is a group of over 140 members based upon collaboration, support, networking and advice. Welcome along both. So this week saw the release of UK inflation figures, Boris Johnson's new green industrial revolution, Trump continuing to fight legal battles in the US and a continuation of lockdown with news that we may, may if we're really good girls and boys, get a day or two off at lockdown for Christmas. And today, we'll be talking whether a four-day working week could help the economy. We'll talk about inflation, consumer confidence, and much more. So let's get stuck in. James, I'll start with you, if I may. Inflation is up slightly at 0.7%, but the reality is the country cannot afford for inflation to go too much higher right now. That's right, isn't it? Do you want to explain a little bit about what inflation is and why it's important to a small business? Most important measurement that the Bank of England and indeed Treasury itself, are, are responsible for. It's the, cost of, um, it's the cost of products, it's the value of money. And the difficulty with inflation growth is that it means that the amount of, amount of produce, the amount of items you end up with in your back pocket for the same money goes down as inflation goes up. So it's vitally important. Um, the fact that inflation has gone up is no massive surprise. It continually goes up. The Bank of England's target is generally 2% a year. We've had our hyperinflations over the years and we've seen printing of money, etc. But um, I don't suppose it's gone up. But the, the thing that concerns me about a rise in inflation is that the traditional tool used to control inflation is the Bank of England base rate, which currently sits at um, 0.1%. Now, if the cost of money goes up, the Bank of England would increase the Bank of England base rate, which makes the cost of borrowing money more expensive, which means that you have less money to spend on consumable goods, which in turn brings the value of them down. Now, with the economy as it is, and with consumer confidence as fragile as it is, I do believe that any kind of increase in base rate at the moment, or certainly in the next sort of couple of years, would create a massive problem because the cost of your mortgage would go up. So, for instance, if you had a £100,000 mortgage and base rate went up by 1%, that interest on that would cost you an extra £1,000 per year, which for a lot of people is the is the line between feeding their family and not at the moment. So I don't think there's a huge amount of scope in the traditional ways of controlling inflation available to the government at the moment in the Bank of England. So an increase in inflation will create some concerns, albeit a nominal increase is 100% natural and normal as the cost of money goes up. 
And, and I'm right in saying that at the moment with the economy as it is and people's earnings as they are, um, in effect, decreasing or staying static at least, yeah. um, it's unlikely that inflation is going to jump up massively because the, the consumer spending isn't there and, and people aren't buying those things and the things aren't in demand and therefore businesses can't charge more for those products. So it's not, it's not exactly going to shoot through the roof anytime soon, I don't think. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. Um, inflation is measured on a basket of goods, um, which which is the average price is taken into consideration, and it's measured. It's measured that way. Now, depending on what these measurements include, can have an impact. It doesn't include house prices, but it can include some consumables like vehicles, as well as your more bog standard everyday purchases. And so you can see some abnormalities there. A certain, let's just say, a car, for instance goes up in price because of technology or a consumable like petrol has a, has a big impact. So there are a lot of variants. And I take any kind of figures like this at the moment for slight pinch of salt due to the highly unusual circumstances we're in. But certainly if you start going back to some of the historic um, inflationary figures that we've seen in this country, certainly back in the, in the 1970s, for instance, where inflation was into double figures, anything like that at this moment in time would be absolutely crippling to the average employee and business in this country. So I don't think it will happen. I think the Bank of England have generally had a very good control over inflation over the last two, three decades, but it's just something else to add to the Treasury's workload at the moment to worry about. Yeah, absolutely. And Paul, do you think um, the small business owner, they need to look at and worry about inflation figures? Is that something, if they're, if they're not over-borrowed, I'm talking about you know the really small businesses that don't have massive borrowings they need to worry about where inflation is it's not they're not in a situation where they can easily increase their prices right now anyway does it matter to them um i guess for some industry sectors it matters more than others you know no one's looking for prices to go up in the current uh, economy you know they want things to sort of uh, maintain the balance um you're right with regard to price increases. You know, if, you, if you're not, as a business owner generally, um, increasing your prices in line with inflation, then effectively that's coming off your bottom line, isn't it, at the end of the day? So you can't continue to not, for it not to have an impact. But I, I, don't, know, I don't know whether worry is the right word. I mean, you know, as a business owner, I guess you need to be looking at the, the, the financial situation and the economy as it is relative to your to your business, I think, at the end of the day. Um, as James said, you know, uh, some of us older people are used to inflation figures at a much higher level. Um, so it's, it's nothing glaring, I guess. It was, what, did you say it was 0.7%? Yeah, 0.7, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot, does it, on the surface? But, uh, you know, let's hope that the, the economic balance is such that, you know, it's maintained at that sort of level without impacting interest rates and other things, because that, that, as James said, you know, I bow to James on his expertise in this area, but if it starts to impact the uh, bank rate and, uh, you know, the cost of borrowing money goes up, then that obviously can impact businesses that need to use that as a source of funding going forward. I found it interesting um, when we came out of lockdown one, inflation figures uh, increased. And one of the reasons that uh, that was to blame was the price of haircuts. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> That's, so, uh, sorry, not for everyone, though. Not for not, everyone. Not for everybody on this call, but it's uh, it's audio, not visual. So Paul can pretend that he's got a head full. 
Yeah, no offense taken, guys. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the haircuts in demand at that point, and so uh, um, salons could charge more. And that's uh, that's all. Yeah, the other slight red herring, I think, is is the um, the eat, the help out to eat out scheme or eat out the help out scheme, where we've had a, a large amount of consumer spending there after a period of withdrawal, which which may have impacted on these figures. So, I think we need to take it with a pinch of salt and see how the dust settles. To be honest. Yeah, good. Um, linked, linked, I guess, to that is uh, reports on um, consumer confidence. So uh, the report out today says that consumer confidence has dropped to its lowest level since the spring, although that survey was conducted pre the vaccine announcement that we had last week. Um, so one thing to note. Uh, and another report from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, said that one third of restaurants think that they'll have to close permanently within the next three months. Um, and overall, 14% of businesses think they'll have to close permanently within that time frame as well. Now, that sounds really negative. Um, and I've talked on this podcast before about the negativity in the media generally on things and whether or not that's reflective in society. But that ONS report Actually, when you look at it, it says that 39% of the businesses that they surveyed said they had a high confidence of the economy over the, the next three months. Um, and another 40% said they had a moderate uh, moderate chance of survival or moderate confidence in the next three months. So in, in total, actually, more businesses think that there's, you know, that there's confidence there. Um, <laughs> James, what do you think? Do you think, um, obviously, some sectors, some, you know, they're struggling, hospitality, leisure, retail, et cetera, they are struggling. But for most businesses, is it something that we can bear through this winter and come out okay? I think um, the average business owner is an optimist. I think anyone who runs a business has to be optimistic because why would you start a business if you weren't positive about it actually succeeding? So, I'd like to think if anyone's still running a business now, they're, they're going to be generally quite confident that it will survive, albeit some industries have been hit very hard. Um, there will be people who say that anyone who thinks their restaurant's going to survive is a bit of a blind optimist at the moment because it does appear to be a slight uphill battle. But those figures, to me, are, I, I agree with you. If you turn them around, actually, they're quite positive, bearing in mind a lot of these businesses have had to effectively close for a m- number of months. On the bright side, I do think that um, going forward into 2021, there's every reason to believe that if you can get through this period reasonably, if not unscathed, then certainly having survived, that we could have a positive year next year. There'll be a lot of people looking to spend money, a lot of people looking to enjoy their lives. And I think a lot of the business sectors who have struggled, I'm thinking especially of the hospitality sector and the travel industry, could, all things like um, travel quarantine periods um, being being sort of back to as they were, could have a very good time as people look to make memories following um, a period of staying at home and they're looking to go out and spend time with their family, friends and spend money on consumables rather than keep it in the bank. So I think people are right to be optimistic and positive about it. But I, I would imagine a lot of people are putting a disclaimer on there, which is the asterisk. I'm confident and optimistic as long as I can get through the next six months with my business intact. So Personally speaking, yes, I think the business owner is a positive person generally. I think they've got every right to be positive about it, but 
goodness me, we could have a few more ups and downs before we get to the stage where there is a, a turnaround for these businesses. We haven't finished on this roller coaster ride just yet. Not yet. Uh, Paul, Paul um, those businesses that, that lack that confidence, is it as much as they have not had the, the courage or ability to, to pivot, to change um, the business, the delivery methods, et cetera? I'm talking, looking at the restaurants. And I, and I know restaurants um, that have closed completely. And I know restaurants that have uh, opened uh, you know, online ordering, takeaways, um, and some even deliveries. And those restaurants seem to be doing okay. Um, and they might not be having, you know, 60 covers, you know, every every day, all day long, but actually they're still doing something that's keeping them through um, this this winter. So is it is it those those businesses, are they just not uh, not able to pivot or not pivoting or not thinking about pivoting? Is it something that they could do that, do you think? I guess it's hard to say, isn't it? Uh, um, you know, but, but by analogy, you know, for those sectors that have been impacted for those that have turned their business around, then obviously if there is a gap in terms of what um, business in the same sector, you know, haven't done. And um, there might be limitations. I heard a great story of a, a, a restaurant, I think it's, it's in Buckinghamshire, uh, when the uh, first lockdown situation came in, into place um, because of the, the size of the building, they couldn't really cater for covers and keep people socially distanced. So what they did is they rented out a, a local barn um, and converted that effectively and ran their restaurant from there. And then when the restrictions got harsher, uh, they started a takeaway service. And I guess it was the community that supported that. And they're turning over in, in times like this now, uh, probably more than they turned over in the restaurant itself. So, I mean, you, you know, I've seen it and we've seen it, you know, in networking context. Some businesses have disappeared. Um, you know, as soon as the first lockdown came, they just, I think I don't know the word is buried their head in the sand or whatever, I don't know, uh, but they disappeared. And in times like this or times of recession, you know, you've really got to continue marketing your business. You've really got to look at how to uh, adapt. In reality, you know, there is always a bit of a cleansing of businesses um, uh, during these times. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? A bad thing for those businesses that don't survive, but maybe a good thing for those that do. You know, being harsh about it, there's less competition, I guess, uh, initially. But then on the back end of that, you'll probably have lots of new businesses starting up um, as a result of um, all the redundancies that, that are happening. So I, I don't know. I think with, with any business owner, it is a mindset thing to an extent. You know, there's always ups and downs for any small business. And it's that mindset that you have to be creative in times of need. And I think, you know, with um, SMEs representing, I think it's just over 50% of the GDP of the country. I think the SMEs are more adaptable and are more likely to uh, contribute to the economy going forward because they're pivoting, to use that word, or because they're diversifying, you know, they're adapting their businesses. Um, and, you know, with, with the competitive highway maybe a little bit freer from those businesses that didn't quite make it, then, you know, let's, let's wave a flag for those, those businesses that do survive and, you know, feel for those that don't. Yeah, I guess it depends on the makeup of the, those businesses that um, have been surveyed. But for me, if it was if it was chain businesses, and uh, and we know you know a lot of the chain uh, restaurants have closed. You know they've they've gone into liquidation. They've gone bust. They've gone into done a CVA or things like that. Do you know what? I don't, I'm not sure. Apart from the jobs that are lost as a result of that, I'm not sure I shed many tears because well, that's just, you know, that's the way in which they, they work and almost kind of a manipulation of the legal system 
um, that uh, that allows them to uh, to do that. For small businesses, they just, they don't really have that opportunity, and they never really have that that luxury to have been able to, you know, enter into a CBA with a landlord and uh, and then and then sit down and demand that they only pay, you know, half the rent that they uh, that they agreed previously under their lease, or that they'll pay on a turnover based. Um, rent that they don't have that power behind them it's just a small yeah. business and so they'll suffer more yeah i mean i think there is positivity out there pre, pre-lockdown one i did a survey uh, of small business owners to sort of see how how they felt the turnover would be impacted versus uh, last year versus this year um, and then post lockdown um, i thought it might be interesting to do that same survey and see how the stats have changed so um it, it probably makes sense that people were less optimistic. So those people that had forecast growth before weren't forecasting as much growth this year. But what was interesting is those businesses that had said they would see a negative impact on their turnover pre-lockdown and post-lockdown, the, the, the percentage stayed about the same. So I guess the message in that was that, that most of those businesses that did that survey were saying that their turnover would stay the same or grow. Yeah. You know, uh, it didn't really, it hadn't, lockdown hadn't impacted, which I guess is a good sign because it means that, you know, those businesses, whether they're adapting, pivoting or whatever, it means that, you know, that they're still looking to stay the same or grow. So that's got to be a good thing on the whole, I think. Yeah, good. Uh, a report out this week, moving on to a different subject, a report out this week said that, um, I'm going to start that bit again. It wasn't a report. Um Move on to a different subject. The some European politicians um, uh, have, have lobbied for them to be a move towards a four-day working week. Um, so they say that uh, that you know all, the, all of the uh, European countries should move to a four-day working week to help their economies recover from the the, the pandemic. Um, and I actually got quite a bit of engagement on social media about this particular subject of reducing uh, people down to four day weeks. So their plan is that um, those that are effectively salaried and working five days a week move down to a four day week on the same pay. And the theory behind it, um, and the, there's, the, there are research into this, is that people doing four days a week are still as productive as those doing five days a week. So there's no loss to the business. They still get the same output but actually then that they have more free time, more ability to go and spend their money um, elsewhere. And one of the, um, one of the things that uh, I found really interesting recently is that I learned that the five-day working week was invented by Henry Ford. Um, and before that point, everybody used to work six days a week, but he realized that um, the moving to a five-day working week allowed people to spend their money on on a Saturday, Sunday being a day of rest and nothing happening on a Sunday, uh, allowing them one day a week to be able to spend their money or at least have desire to spend their money. And then um, they couldn't afford certain things, so that would work harder to be able to earn money, to be able to go and spend some uh, spend money in the economy. And, and almost that um, those two things linked together in my mind and I thought, actually, there's a potential here that a four-day working week makes makes people feel like they've you know, they're, they're doing okay, they're happier. And if they're happier, then maybe they will go and spend some money, they'll go to a restaurant, they'll go and spend, you know, go to do some activities, they'll go and, you know, go shopping or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I'm kind of a bit uh, torn, I can see it from a, a, a business's point of view of immediately thinking, well, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm getting four days worth of work for my same money. And that's not value. But if the productivity and output remain the same, then I think it would be a good good thing so Paul do you have any thoughts on reducing down to a four-day working week 
I'm interested about the survey. Is, is that a UK based? Uh, yeah, no, it was. So it wasn't a survey. Um, it was. It's. It's something that some. Um, the papers call them left-wing politicians in Europe um, have uh, have put together this plan of action. So they've, they've you know effectively petitioning Europe now to change the the rules to reduce it down to a, a four-day week instead of five-day. Um, I mean, if if, product, if productivity is not impacted and the output is the same, then it's certainly got to be a benefit for, for employees, hasn't it? You know, if they if their working week is reduced, their money is the same. Uh, they've got more freedom. Yeah, it's going to have an impact on their well-being, I guess. You know, the stress and anxiety that exists in the work, workplace. I'm sure some small business owners listening think, are thinking four-day week. You know, I'd be lucky to get down to a six-day week now. But, um, you know, that, I guess that's the case for the owners. But, yeah, I, I see it as being a, something that if, if, if the productivity and output uh, stats are right, then... I don't, I don't see any neg- negatives with it, really. Um, I guess it's, it's business. The difficulty comes with those businesses where the consumer needs access to them five days a week. So I guess that, that, that would just need sort of shifting flexible hours and making sure that coverage is there. But no, on, on the whole, I don't see any massive negativity to it. Some, some intangibles as well. So they, they say um, it, it saved the environment. You know, we, we saw that kind of in actual lockdown, not this pretend lockdown that we're in now, but in, in actual lockdown where everyone stayed at home, the environmental issues, the outputs, um, you know, in cars, buses, trains, etc., dropped massively. And that will have a, a, you know, a good long-term impact. James, what's your thoughts on this? This topic has been spoken about for an awful long time. And it's that the, the rise of flexible working and flexible hours has been one of the kind of workplace phenomenons over the last couple of decades. And more and more people now are choosing compressed hours, whether they're working you know, four days a week, but longer hours. I know people doing that. I know people who are starting work at half nine and, finishing a half free and picking it up in the evening. And a four-day work week is um, almost a natural extension of that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There are, there are businesses, Paul says, consumer-led ones. I'm thinking about in certain financial marketplace where it would be very difficult to enforce this as the idea of working hours is very – nine to five, Monday to Friday, is very much embedded in the culture of the organisations. Um, and I, I, I guess my, my, my question as a small business owner to an employee would be if – if productivity isn't impacted by reducing their work hours by 20%, then what are they doing in that 20% at this moment in time? Because it, 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 it appears to be one of those slightly biased kind of points of view. And you mentioned that is that is the left-wing politicians of Europe who have proposed this. Um, uh, that 20%, they're, not, they're obviously not working anyway, albeit they're pretty in work hours and they're, um, they're currently in a work environment and are actually doing the productive work. So it'll be interesting to see um, a bit further research on that, but I'm, I'm not sure that it will happen on a more permanent basis because I do think that the culture of nine to five, Monday to Friday, and the 35-hour fixed working week is very much culturally embedded in us. And I'm not sure so, yeah. that... Um, I, Put it like this, if I can imagine going to some of my old bosses and suggesting I go on to a four-day week and my productivity wouldn't wouldn't alter at all. I'd be interested to see what they'll actually say to that proposition. I suspect it would probably end in off. Mm. Um, <laughs> so so the, the, I, the flip side, and we've 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 probably all experienced this um ourselves personally, which is if you if you're going on holiday, 
you know, you've got that holiday booked in and, and you, you know, your flight's on there or, you, you, you know, you've got to hit the car by this particular time on this particular day. It, it, you, you make it happen. Like that, that week's worth of work, if you've only got three days to do it and four days to do it in, like it, it, it happens. It's, um, you know, you, you kind of pull it out of the bag. And I, and I think that's the, almost the principle of it. It's not that, you know, you're being lazy doing it in five days. It's just that you'll, you'll work harder doing it in four days because you kind of incentivize that you'll have, you'll have that day off. Um, but this is a linked story, um, which I found interesting, but you two are probably aren't the, the right people to talk to ever about, but we'll do it anyway. Um, which is this uh, Zurich, the insurance company, they've, they've now offered every single one of their jobs is, is now um, uh, offered flexibly. So you can work part-time, you can do job share, et cetera. Every single one of their jobs uh, allows it. Um, and they saw uh, a, a marked increase in the number of women that then applied for jobs, applied for roles, et cetera. So, and, and, and it's really interesting um, with the engagement that I've had on that four-day working week. Um, it is it is, you know, there's a lot of women that are replying and saying, you know, yeah, they're either doing it or they would, you know, like to see that kind of thing in place. And I just wondered whether or not, actually, it's something that's even more fundamental um, to it that uh, that brings out the balance. There's, a, there's another report this week uh, that says women in their 30s, in their mid 30s, may never see e equal pay in their lives. Um, and so I'm a big fan of making sure that, you know, women are, are equal, more than equal. Um, in, in what we do and maybe this four-day working week is a way of of seeing that through as well and it, it almost kind of achieves a number of aims so it reduces the climate down it improves uh, equality in the workplace allows people access to uh to, to work that you know perhaps weren't working and makes everybody happier and men makes all the mental health issues uh great is i appreciate it's an incredibly left way of looking at it and the the the, the, the writer writer more capitalist viewpoint as you say, James, would be, you know, well, what am I paying for? Why would I pay four days work, um, you know, for five days pay? And I might as well pay four days work for four days pay. So I think it's probably something that we're not going to see uh, uh, an immediate adoption in the EU for. And we're out of it anyway, so we're not going to be enforced. It's not going to have it forced upon us, but something to, to consider and ponder. Uh, in I, don't, any I think any initiative or incentive for more people who are, able to do the job well to be in the job is a good thing be that male female um absolutely and as i said a minute ago the rise of flexible workhouse has been a revelation for so many workplaces and a big part of that has been encouraging um people and generally it is women the statistics bear this out with childcare responsibilities to come into the workplace and i know of instances where it started that way and in the end the, the the wife or female partner in a relationship has been so successful that the, the male is then taking the back seat. And I can't see that as being anything other than a positive thing, to be perfectly honest. So if this is a, a natural byproduct of of a four day working week, then then that would be fantastic. Well, it's, it's interesting. You had Mari Richardson on the other week. I think it was last week, Stephen. Yes. Um, and her book club. Uh, book last month was uh, a book called Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg, who used to work for the likes of Facebook and Google. And it's very much about women in the workplace and, uh, you know, the impact that um, having children has in, in um, you know, lifestyle and everything else. Uh, so I think, yeah, if it's going to attract more women with flexible hours, you know, into, into industry that wouldn't ordinarily because of childcare commitments, then it's, again, that's another positive, isn't it? 
And hopefully, you know, as if that if that means a bigger influx of women in the workplace, then hopefully that will contribute to um, uh, the getting back to sort of like level of equal pay and e equal um, uh, opportunities and things like that. So, yeah, you know, another tick in the box, I guess. Absolutely. So uh, moving on to uh, to another subject. So public borrowing, we've found out today, public borrowing for October has hit 23 billion. Public borrowing is where there is a difference between income in tax receipts and the amount of money that the, uh, that the government needs to spend. So it needs to borrow the money to, uh, to pay for it. So last month we borrowed 23 billion. Um, uh, it's borrowed 169 billion more this year than it had done uh, last year. Completely separate to that, completely separate to that. Um, Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, announced that it paid no tax in the UK. Um, and and uh, that was because of it said some you know investments that it's made into the North Sea, et cetera. It's paid billions worldwide. I'm not criticizing uh, them too much. Um, and then again, separate to that, there's a report in today's Guardian, I think it was, that said um, that uh, $427 billion worldwide has uh, of tax has not been paid by multinationals effectively diverting profits to low or no tax uh, country havens, uh, tax havens, something that's not available to the small, medium-sized business owner, um, but it is available to these big organizations. So $427 billion of no tax and our government needed to borrow $160 billion because it doesn't have enough tax. I think we can all agree that there should be some some further regulation on the, these multinationals uh, as a on a global basis perhaps to stop them avoiding tax and making sure that they're you know, contributing to the community james yeah i mean to, to pick up on the point you mentioned first of all there um it appears likely if we continue following the same pattern we're on now that the national debt of the uk will overtake its gdp in the next couple of years. I, I read that statistic this morning. I think it's worth bearing in mind to put it in context. When when Gordon Brown was the Chancellor back um, between 97 and 2007, he stated publicly that um, G national debt was never to go above 40% of GDP. And so 15 years later, or less than 15 years, we're actually nudging 100%. That's a trend which is a hell of a downward curve. Um, so definitely worth bearing that in mind. With regard to multinationals, people have been talking about this as long as I can certainly remember, picking on people like your Amazons um, and your cost of coffees of this world and how much tax they pay. Shell, obviously, are a, a massive um, half-British-owned company, and I assume they fulfil all their legal requirements with regard to taxation. Does that make it fair? It doesn't seem so. Does it mean they're doing anything wrong? I suppose not. Are there loopholes that need to be closed? I would imagine there would. And I'm sure Shell have had terse negotiations with the Treasury about these kind of instances where they can point to the number of people they're employing. They can point to the, the fact that they're um, researching and they're paying the, the tax that's being paid on petrol that's being purchased in this country, which originally came through their pipelines. So it's one of those things. It's one of those left wing causes where people like to pick on the larger companies. And I understand it. And I'm naturally very sympathetic towards it. But I don't want I don't want to be in a position where all of a sudden we're upsetting co companies like this enough that they decide to take their their business elsewhere. There's an awful lot of oil in Russia they could probably explore rather than the North Sea. So, so yes, 
changes need to be made and maybe an agreement needs to be made if if for PR purposes rather than nothing else for companies like this to actually make a contribution towards tax, especially in a time like this. Paul, any views? I think James has pretty much covered it. It's frustrating, isn't it? You know, it's frustrating when you hear stories like that. And as James said, you know, it, it's le legitimate. You know, there are tax specialists out there who find loopholes. If the government puts legislation in, um, then I'm sure there'll be other loopholes that those companies will find. So it's a vicious circle that, that continues to happen. But I think going forward, you know, to, to pinch James's uh, phrase and something that I think you like to get in every podcast, you know, is kicking the issue, kicking the can down the road. Yeah, if you're going to uh, say it, say it properly. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Kicking the issue down the pathway. Kicking, kicking the can down the road. <laughs> you paraphrase, just plagiarise. <laughs> yeah, kicking the cylinder down the tarmac. Um, so, yeah, so I think, but I think people, however the government is going to reclaim this money, uh, you know, which is going to have to happen, uh, I think, you know, your average person or your small business is going to be very, very frustrated if they're hammered in some way by personal tax or business tax uh, and, you know, all these stories come out about these big corporations that are getting away with it. Um, so, so I think something needs to be done, you know, and I don't know whether it's necessarily a, a, a tax, you know, is, is there some way that the, these businesses can be encouraged to invest in some way that's going to be a contribution to the country, you know, be it jobs, be it charitable contributions, be it, to green energy. I don't know, you know, are there other ways that these companies can be encouraged to invest rather than just pay tax if they're going to continue to find the loopholes? But yeah, that's that's the only thing I would add. Good. Well, thanks very much, guys. Is there any uh, any news stories this week that's caught your attention that you think we should have a chat about? Well, the figures came out today, and this is um, something reasonably close to my heart, that the, the total amount guaranteed by the government under the various corona loan schemes is now 65 billion pounds a majority of that is the bounce back loan scheme but also the two other loan schemes the corona business interruption loan scheme and the corona large business loan scheme so that money in in the light of 14 percent of businesses don't think they're going to be trading in x period another 40 percent are, are are worried when you look at these figures i bet a majority of those businesses do have some sort of support via these loan schemes so it's a, it's a large amount of money. And when we talk about adding to national debt, there could be another 30, 40 billion there straight away, to be honest. Mm, a huge amount. And, and of course, has a, a, a massive impact on everyone else that, that doesn't, uh, that does repay those debts because it means that we, we've got to fund the non-repayment in tax. Absolutely. Um, and that's the, the, the simple maths of it. You know, there's, there's an inevitability. We already know that um, a vast majority, not a vast majority, um, there's there's a huge amount of the bounce back loans that have been fraudulently obtained um, or by companies that have been resurrected um, just for the purposes of um, getting the bounce back loan and then and then not trading. So we know that there's going to be a, a, a sum of uh, some of those bounce backs that aren't repaid. We already know that. And that just has a knock on effect on those small businesses that actually needed it um, because it, it's inevitability. We're going to have to repay it back. Um, and of course, you know, one of the things that we've talked about, James, in the past as well before is there's lots of small businesses that have taken out these loans um, because they're free and they're easy and there were the money on the you know the money's there and uh, and use it, but they they seem to you know perhaps maybe have missed the fact that they've got to have to repay this back. And when it's when it kicks in, 
next year, you know, if you've taken £50,000 loan, what's that going to cost you? Seven, 800 quid a month, something like that, yeah, maybe? It works out around about 800 odd quid a month, just over 800 quid a month over the five years. So mm. um, if, you, if you want to bet on the under over spread on the amount of missed first payments next May, yeah, uh, I'm currently got it around about 20%, I think is my sort of feeling of first payments being missed. But uh, I'll happily take, accept bets on the under over on that if anyone's interested. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Excellent, guys. Thank you very much for joining us again on this week's uh, Business Hour podcast. No problem. Happy to be here. Pleasure to be here. And, uh, and to the listeners at home, thank you very much for tuning in to uh, the Business Herald podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, do leave us some feedback. Leave us a review on your podcast website, wherever you download your podcast from. And engage with us on social media or at the Business Herald. And tell us what you think. Um, got any thoughts about the, the, the conversations that we've had today about the subjects? Let us know. And, uh, and thanks again once for listening. Um, you can listen to the Business Herald podcast. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Paul, was there anything that caught your eye? It did catch my eye. I'm not sure it's uh, for discussion. It, and it's something that um, was highlighted to me initially by Mark Costa, who uh, you guys know, and maybe some of the listeners uh, know. And he just spotted this news article about the Vatican are investigating um, the fact that the Pope's Instagram account apparently liked the image of a scantily clad Brazilian model. So I'm sure it's not the Pope directly, but I'm sure there's one of his aides that's going to be in serious trouble trying to explain why an account followed by 74.4 million people um, had uh, had the Pope effectively seemingly liking this uh, Brazilian model uh, on Instagram. So one of those those stories, isn't it, where where, um, it, it would be naive to think that we've got the Pope actually doing the Instagram account himself. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of what we all really want this story to be about. The, the, the Pope's actually gone on and going, oh, oh look at this. I'll like it, naively realising that half the population in the world are going to see it. <laughs> We've all clicked on the wrong buttons occasionally on social media. The and you use that excuse once or twice, James. You're running out of times to use it again. <laughs> this isn't a confessional, James. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.